Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. If you've been paying attention to world events over the last few weeks, I'm sure that your heart has been burdened by the suffering that has been endured by various individuals and groups of people in the country of Afghanistan. When the United States military decided to withdraw in early August from the country of Afghanistan, that allowed the Taliban to take over the country. And the Taliban, as a, as a terrorist group or as a terrorist group of people, perhaps they're not a terrorist group in the specific sense like Hamas or ISIS, but they are a group of people who terrorize others who do not believe exactly like them, so therefore they are a terrorist group. When that group of people took over rule in Afghanistan, it has caused a great amount of suffering to many people, not only the Afghanis who are native to the country, but people from other countries who have been in Afghanistan trying to help rebuild that country and establish human rights in that country, who have been doing humanitarian projects in that country. The United States withdrawal of military forces caused a vacuum of power that was quickly filled by the Taliban. And now the Taliban, today is August 31st, have declared victory over the United States and have plunged the country of Afghanistan back into the strictest form of rule, according to the religion of Islam, known as Sharia law. And this is a very oppressive, unmerciful, and undignified type of rule. And for me personally, this has just caused a lot of anguish over the last couple of weeks because it's it's difficult to watch innocent people suffer. And I, I've really been trying to reconcile that in my own mind. How how and why are these people suffering innocently? And and why why do we have leaders in our country, the United States, who seem to be not very concerned about the suffering of these innocent people at the hands of the Taliban. Leaders in our government seem to be more aligned with the interests of the Taliban than with the interests of the common man. And I don't really want to be political or make a political statement. And I'm not sure that, you know, one political party would handle this tremendously better than the other political party. I have some guesses as to what would happen if a different political party were in charge. But as a Christian, I'm not relying upon a political party to provide justice. I'm not looking to a political party to provide answers. So you may be a Christian today and you may be affiliated with one political party or the other in the United States, or if you're listening in whatever country you might be listening, you may be affiliated with one political party or another one. 
we must remember that as Christians, our, our deliverance, our hope does not come from political parties. Our deliverance and our hope comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and from God the Father, who is sovereign over all creation. And when we see the innocent suffer, man, it just burns up our hearts. And we want to know, God, why? Why are you allowing this? And it just, it just seems harsh that God would allow this to happen. But we have to remind ourselves as believers, and, and this is what I've had to remind myself. God, you have a purpose in allowing this suffering for these people. You have a purpose in allowing this suffering for me as a Christian who is on the other side of the world and relatively helpless to affect any change. God, you have a purpose in allowing this suffering for many people throughout the world who are watching this with incredible disbelief. How could America do this? How could America turn her back on her allies? Well, today I want to review with you a couple of the scriptural purposes that God has and a couple of the principles that we need to keep in mind as we consider how to view the suffering of the innocent. First of all, I want to start with a story that was told to Jesus and his response in the Gospel of Luke. Now, in Luke chapter 13, there were some individuals who were listening to Jesus teach, and these individuals said this to Jesus. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who, who told Jesus about some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate had somehow desecrated these Jewish people. They had been executed for whatever reason we don't know. And the blood of these people who were executed was mixed with the blood of the sacrifices that was presented upon the altar of God. And according to Jewish tradition, this meant that these individuals were extraordinarily disgraced, they were cursed, the offerings were not accepted. It was very bad, okay? And while I don't know all the intricate details of why this was so abhorrent, it's apparent from the context, from the text, that it was abhorrent. And it was like a very disconcerting thing that had happened in the nation of Israel. And now Jesus, in hearing the situation, responds in a way that is, is rather unusual. Listen to what he says. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So basically Jesus is saying, because these Galileans suffered in an unusual way and an unusually cruel thing or abhorrent thing was done to them, does that make them worse sinners than anybody else? Now, what's the answer to that? 
I hope that you would come to the conviction that the answer is no. They were not worse sinners than anybody else. In fact, they were sinners to the same degree as everybody else was a sinner. Why? Because we know from the scriptures that all sin and all fall short of the glory of God, and one sinner who sins one time has violated the entire law of God just as much as a sinner who sins a thousand times. Both stand condemned before a holy God. Now, what does Jesus then go on to say? He doesn't talk or address anymore the abhorrent nature of the death that these Galileans suffered. What he goes on to talk about is the personal responsibility of the individuals to repent or likewise perish. Listen, verse 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus then goes on to relate another story, another example to these individuals. Verse 4, or how about those 18 people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And what's the answer? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see, the Jews were concerned that these individuals were being judged by God in some unfair, unjust way. That the fact that their lives were cut short in this seemingly random event was a depiction of God's judgment upon them. And Jesus is basically saying, no, no, what happened here was the natural effect of the curse of sin. Part of the curse of sin is that when when you're living life, in the course of life, you might die prematurely before you expect to die. And you don't have control over that. God does. And so Jesus uses this situation of the premature death of the innocent. Okay, they were guilty in the eyes of God because they were sinners. But from a human perspective, they were innocent, right? They were they were innocent of having committed any crime worthy of the deaths that they suffered. Jesus is moving beyond the human perspective to the divine perspective, saying, look, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Now, he didn't mean that a tower would fall on them or that they would be desecrated with some type of pagan sacrificial ritual. What he meant was there would be an eternal punishment to pay because death comes to all people. And when death comes to all people, or when death comes to a person, then their judgment is sealed. There is no longer any opportunity to repent. And one of the lessons that I take away from this, that I'm trying to apply to the situation in Afghanistan as I observe, is that it should cause us to consider our mortality. When we see the innocent suffer, when we see the innocent put to death, they're innocent from a human perspective, right? But they're not innocent from a divine perspective. Now, that's not to say that God is allowing them to die as a specific judgment for their sins. No, I believe people are dying in Afghanistan right now 
because of the natural consequences of the curse of, of sin. Because men are wicked and evil and they hate other men and they will do evil things to one another. That's why people are dying in Afghanistan. But as we see that death, as we see the innocent suffer, the effect that it should have upon us is to consider, have we repented? Have we repented of our sins? Are we ready to face the day of judgment when we die? That's how Jesus wanted his audience to consider the death and the suffering of the innocent. It should be a wake-up call. And I hope that I hope that this situation, as tragic as it is, results in a wake-up call for those in America. Hey, look, we're not guaranteed life. Hey, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Hey, look, those we put our faith and trust in, the United States government, they could let us down and leave us for dead. But you know who will not let you down? Who will not leave you for dead? Jesus Christ. And so it is an imperative that one lesson we learn from the suffering of the innocent is that we should consider our own future destiny. And if we have not repented of our sins, then we must repent and we must put our faith and trust in Jesus. Now, a second thing to consider when we watch the suffering of the innocent is that God is not unaware and God is not impotent. It may seem like it. You know, from a human perspective, we want God to rush in and stop all the suffering. We want God to rush in and stop all of the harm and the pain that human beings are causing to one another. But in God's divine plan and according to God's divine purpose, he doesn't do that. From a human perspective, it looks like he allows the wicked to prosper. And you can see that the psalmist wrestle with this in several of the psalms, most notably Asaph in Psalm 73, and I believe King David in Psalm 10. Listen in particular to Psalm 10. What is David saying? Psalm 10 verse 1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. David is saying, Lord, don't you see how the wicked are triumphing? Don't you see how the wicked are prospering? Why don't you let them be caught in their own plans? Why don't you let them be destroyed by their own devices? Well, God has a plan to deal with the wicked. But ultimately, what God does is he uses wicked people to bring lost sinners to himself. Think about that. God uses wicked people to bring lost sinners to himself. If everything was great and there was no suffering on the earth right now, and we didn't really experience very much as a result of the curse of sin, we didn't experience much suffering or much pain, what reason would we have to choose God? Very little at all. We wouldn't choose him. In fact, even when some people are suffering greatly, they don't choose God. They choose to double down on 
whatever it is that they presently believe, whatever idol they have established besides God. And here, David talks about the advantage that the wicked have and how it seems that they get away with hurting the innocent and committing wicked deeds. And it seems like God has forgotten. It seems like God has hidden his face. It seems like God will never see it. But you know what? That's not true. And here's the second point that we need to consider as Christians. God will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. God will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. Again, as we look at things from a horizontal human perspective, it appears that the wicked get away with a lot. But God sees everything. God sees everything that you do in the privacy of your room, in the privacy of your mind, the sins that you commit. While nobody else may see those things on the outside, God sees those things. And so we who will not escape the intricate gaze of God as he looks into our hearts and discerns our motives, we who will not escape that ought to have confidence that the wicked who are outwardly sinning, who are outwardly rebelling against God, we should have confidence that they too will not escape the judgment of God. Furthermore, King David goes on to recognize at the end of Psalm 10 that the Lord is king forever and ever. The Lord's kingship, the Lord's kingdom is eternal. And all the kingdoms of the earth will come, they will rise to power, and then they will go away again. That's what he says in verse 16. Nations have perished from his land. Hey, you think you're a mighty nation? Guess what? When God is done with you, it doesn't matter how mighty you are, you are done. One of the incredible things in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, and in interpreting the, the vision of, or the dream, rather, of King Nebuchadnezzar, is the description of these powerful, mighty kingdoms who basically conquered the entire earth, and then when God was done with them, they vanished off the face of the earth. When he was finished with them, those kingdoms fell. And that's what David relies upon here. He reminds himself of this truth. The Lord is king forever and ever, and you, Christian, need to remind yourself of that truth as well. God is king, and God will do what is just and right. David goes on to say this, O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart, and you will incline your ear. And what will ultimately happen? You will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. There will come a day in the future when God will enact or exact his vengeance upon wicked men. And my friends, that will be a glorious and a triumphant day, although it will be a terrifying day for those who are wicked, because they, after experiencing the vengeance of God, 
will then suffer for all of eternity as a result of their sin. My friends, as we consider the reality of the suffering of the innocent, and we look at this problem from a biblical perspective, my hope and my prayer is that I would conform my thinking to be in line with the Word of God. And here's the application that I think I want to make personally. I personally want to make this application. And you may make a different application, but here's what I want to make. First, I want to conform my thinking so that I don't judge God. I don't want to think of God as unfair or unjust or uncaring or unloving because that is a wrong perception of God. Secondly, I want to realize that God is using suffering to bring people to repentance. God is using suffering to bring people to repentance. Now, perhaps in Afghanistan, there are thousands of people who will come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of the persecution that is taking place. Perhaps in America, there are thousands of people who will come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of the persecution that, that is taking place in other parts of the world. And so, my friends, let us pray that those who are suffering, if they are Christians, will bear up under the suffering and use it to glorify God, that they will preach the gospel and the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And let us, who are witnesses to the suffering, speak out against the wickedness of our rulers, but also speak about the hope that all might have in Jesus Christ, died to save all from their sins, all that is, who would repent and call upon his name. I hope that you're challenged and blessed And I hope that as you consider the suffering of the innocent, you would do so with a desire to give God the glory in all things. Amen.